all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. Southern Remedy listeners, welcome to Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Josie Bidwell, Assistant Professor of Nursing and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. April is Alcohol Awareness Month, and we are kicking off this week with my guest, Costas Mateos, owner and clinical director of A Bridge to Recovery. Do you have questions about alcohol and addiction? What about how to start those difficult conversations with your loved ones? We want to hear from you today with your questions, comments, and stories. Give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or send us an email at fit at mpbonline.org. And we'll be back after the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The Senate Judiciary Committee is meeting this hour. The Republican-led panel is expected to approve the Supreme Court nomination of Neil Gorsuch on a party-line vote. NPR's Nina Totenberg reports Democrats are threatening a filibuster in the full Senate. Senate Democratic leader Chuck Schumer contends that Gorsuch has to get 60 votes in order to prevail, a supermajority that he maintains previous nominees have been required to meet. In fact, that's not exactly true. Justice Clarence Thomas was confirmed by a vote of 52 to 48 in 1991, and Justice Samuel Alito by a vote of 58 to 42 in 2006. If opponents refuse to end debate, 60 votes would be needed to move to an up-or-down vote. There have been four such filibusters over the last half-century. The only one that succeeded was the 1968 Republican filibuster blocking the Democratic nomination of Abe Fortas to be Chief Justice. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. A lawsuit filed this morning by a paid political commentator for the Fox News Channel alleges the network's former chairman, Roger Ailes, made unwanted sexual advances while holding out the possibility of a big promotion. Julie Roginski alleges that Ailes encouraged her to date older, conservative married men, repeatedly praised her looks, and sought to get her to join him for a drink in his office, away from prying eyes, as Roginski puts it. Roginski's suit also claims Fox News president Bill Shine retaliated against her for failing to defend Ailes against earlier accusations by former Fox host Gretchen Carlson and for raising concerns about Ailes' conduct. The White House confirms President Trump's son-in-law and senior advisor Jared Kushner is visiting Iraq. He was invited by the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Joseph Dunford. Kushner's visit comes as an investigation is underway into civilian deaths in the Mosul area near the site of a U.S.-led airstrike last month. Russia's health minister now says 10 people have died as a result of a large explosion in a St. Petersburg subway. 
Covering the story from Moscow, Charles Maine says at least 40 other people were injured. The bombing occurred mid-afternoon in downtown St. Petersburg, Semi-Ploshet Station. Initial reports indicated a second explosion in a neighboring stop that now appears to have been smoke carryover from the initial blast. But police say they found another bomb at a third station that failed to detonate. Video and pictures from the scene show the doors of a metro wagon twisted outward, the explosion having destroyed the inside of the car and ripped into passengers. Emergency services are on hand and a mass evacuation is underway. Russian President Vladimir Putin is currently in St. Petersburg for a pro-Kremlin media forum. The Russian leader expressed condolences to families and friends of the victims. He's also spoken with security officials from the FSB who have launched an investigation into the cause of the blast. For NPR News, I'm Charles Maines in Moscow. You're listening to NPR News. A judge in Philadelphia is considering whether comedian Bill Cosby's public life and comments will factor into his upcoming sexual assault trial. From member station WHYY, Laura Benchoff says the judge expects the trial to last at least two weeks. During his 50-plus years in the spotlight, Bill Cosby has made several remarks about using drugs on women. In 2015, Cosby was charged with aggravated sexual assault stemming from a 2004 encounter with Andrea Constant, a former employee of Temple University's women's basketball program. Constant says Cosby, who was a friend, drugged her before engaging in unwanted sexual contact. His defense attorneys now want to exclude any comments about drugs that the comedian has made, not directly related to Constant's allegations. Prosecutors have asked to admit Cosby's past remarks about obtaining quaaludes to give women before sex, as well as an excerpt from his 1991 memoir as evidence. For NPR News, I'm Laura Benshoff in Philadelphia. In Maine, lawmakers are considering multiple bills that reportedly would roll back the minimum wage law voters approved in November. Under that law, the increase in Maine's minimum wage would have been from $7.50 per hour to $12 an hour by 2020. And tipped employees' wages would reach the minimum wage by the year 2024. Construction picked up over the winter. The Commerce Department reports spending rose eight-tenths of a percent in February, the highest level since April of 2006. February's gains follows two months of declines. At last check, Dow was down 127. This is NPR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Mile IQ. The Mile IQ app automatically tracks business miles to streamline and maximize deductions or expenses. The Mile IQ app is available for download in the App Store and Google Play. This is Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit with Dr. Josie Bidwell on MPB Think Radio. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call 877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464. Or you can email the show fit at mpbonline.org. And now, Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. Welcome back to 
Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. I'm your host, Dr. Josie Bidwell, Assistant Professor of Nursing and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And we are kicking off Alcohol Awareness Month with my guest, Costas Matthews, who is the Clinical Director and Owner at A Bridge to Recovery. And we want to talk to you guys today. We want to hear your stories, hear your comments or your questions about alcohol use, um, addiction, anything that we can help you with today, you can give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring or send me an email at fit at mpbonline.org. Good morning, Costas. Good morning. So tell us a little bit about A Bridge to Recovery and, and what that is. A Bridge to Recovery is an outpatient treatment facility. We specialize in treating substance use disorder and mental health issues as well as trauma. We have an intensive outpatient, which we have clients who have maybe they've been in residential treatment and they're stepping down for continuation of care, or it might be just individuals who have never had treatment before that do not meet the criteria for residential treatment or detox, but they still need more support, containment, structure, and monitoring to help them um, reach the desired goals that they have. And so, you know, we're talking about alcohol today, but there, you mentioned there are other conditions that can be treated um, in at a bridge to recovery. What are some of those other conditions that you guys take care of? Well, we specialize in treating sex addiction, eating disorders, um, and like I mentioned, trauma. We do a lot of work with individuals. Um, I call our civil servants here, you know, in the area, um, our soldiers on the ground. So we do a lot of work with trauma. Okay. And so if someone was needing your services, is that a referral process from a from a physician or a primary care provider or can they call you guys directly? Both. They can call us directly or send us an email asking questions. Um, most individuals call though. That's how I get most individuals in. Excellent. So that's a great resource um, here in the, the Jackson area for that. And there are resources all across the state. And if you're interested in hearing about any of those resources, you can send me an email at fit at MPB online.org and I'll be happy to send you some information about resources in your area. So let's talk about Alcohol Awareness Month and why it's so important that we have a month devoted to that. Absolutely. Well, individuals typically, um, you know, as an overall whole, do not see alcohol as a drug. And the way that I look at it is it's a liquid drug and it's the one drug that will actually kill individuals, um, especially those who are chronic alcoholics, chronic relapsers, bingers that drink excessively and then just want to stop cold turkey. Um, I've seen and heard time and time again where they go into the detox or the DTs um, and without having the medical you know, support and containment, um, their bodies can shut down very quickly. Right. You know, I was reading actually an article this weekend and it was called More Than a Hangover mm-hmm. because, you know, it, it's so social. You know, alcohol is such a, a social thing that it's it's very widely accepted that, you know, alcohol is a part of most social functions. And, you know, you're actually almost looked at kind of strange if you if you don't have some alcohol right. at a function. But when we overindulge, you know, the majority of us get, you know, a hangover, but it is really more than that. You know, it's more than a hangover. What all does, what all body systems does alcohol affect? Oh, oh my goodness. Where do I start? I mean, everything from mental processing to physiologically to um, individuals, you know, uh, responses and delayed responses to lowering their inhibitions. Um, it really is one that 
as you mentioned, that it's socially acceptable. And I think one of the the pieces that confuses individuals is, you know, okay, well, I'm a little tipsy and, you know, may not have all my facets working for me. But then, um, you know, you'll see them get behind the wheel and hear, you know, they're getting pulled over and they're not aware that they're even in quote unquote intoxicated. And they might have had two or three beverages. Um, however, dear, you know, depending on weight and how a body metabolizes the substance, I mean, they can absolutely be beyond the legal limit. All right, absolutely. Some people, you know, we kind of say they have a different tolerance yes. for it. So whereas someone might can have two or three and, you know, still be okay, although I would never advocate anyone who's had anything to drink to get behind the wheel of a car. Absolutely. Um, you know, someone else, it may only take one drink and they are, you know, significantly cognitively impacted from that. So if my rule is if you've had anything to drink, you don't operate any kind of machinery, not even the jukebox. Absolutely. And then I always ask individuals, okay, well, they've had one drink. What are we talking about? Like a nuke size cup? Or are we talking right. about, you know, one smaller, regular size glass of wine? Right. And that's, you know, it's the same deal with when I'm counseling patients about food intake, and they say, well, I have one glass of juice. <laughs> well, you know, was it a juice glass of juice or was it, you know, the Waffle House, um, you know, 12 ounce glass of juice because that's three juices. Mm -hmm. So it really does matter. So that brings me in to actually what I wanted to talk about is what is a serving size of alcohol? So when we say one drink, two drink, three drinks, what is a drink? Good question. What is a drink? Um, well, I mean, people may say they have a beer. Well, are we talking a big beer or a 16 ouncer, one of the gigantic ones? Um, typically, one drink, and it depends on where you go and who serves it. So if you're talking about one regular size shot that's mixed with, you know, something, some type of mixer. And vodka and Sprite or yeah, you know, some kind of hard like liquor that. and a mixer. Or if it's, um, you know, vodka on the rocks and it's a heavy pour. So I think that's really a difficult question to answer. Um, because nobody pours something right. exactly the same. Right. So, you know, in general, when we're talking about uh, beer, it's a 12-ounce beer. Right. You know, that's kind of one one serving yes. of beer. And it's all based on how much alcohol content is in the individual um, variety of liquor that yes. you're using. So there is, you know, less alcohol in a beer than there is in a wine. Absolutely. Uh, so you can have a little bit bigger serving of beer than you can of wine. So that's why 12 ounces of beer is a serving, but five ounces of wine is a serving because there's just more alcohol content in that. Yes. So, you know, think about that when you're kind of spending your limit. You know, if you're going to have, I'm going to have two drinks, think about what that actually means. That may be 24 ounces of beer, but it's certainly not 24 ounces of wine. So that would be way too much. And then, you know, when you're talking about a regular normal serving, um, if a person has had a gastric bypass, and you probably know more about that this mm -hmm. than I do, you know, for someone to have a 12-ounce beer, how does it impact them? Right. Well, <laughs> they're not going to be able to drink it all, probably. It depends on, the you know, what type of procedure they've had. Absolutely. But, you know, that's a, a big problem when we're dealing with people who have had a bariatric procedure is we don't want them uh, consuming all of their calories from liquid sources because there's no nutrition in that. So if they're going out for an evening and they're, you know, consuming, you know, a beer, two beers, and they're filling their stomach up with that, then what are they eating as well? Nothing to kind of anchor that alcohol, which may make them you know, get a little tipsy a little sooner than we would like for them to. And I've seen so many clients that have come in and they've had some type of bariatric surgery and they've switched from food 
to substances, um, alcohol, wine, beer. And that I've seen a way more increased um, since all of the individuals having surgeries over time. Okay. Well, that's interesting, mm-hmm. but it makes sense. You know, I often see patients who have uh, decided to stop smoking, and but they replace that that habit and that addiction with something else. And sometimes it's often food. You know, they switch from uh, from the, the nicotine to actually, uh, they're wanting that oral sensation. And so they overeat with that. So all of these don't just replace one thing with another. You know, there is treatment out there for, for all of these addiction disorders and these, uh, you know, overindulging type of things. And what we do at A Bridge to Recovery is we treat addiction interaction. Um, because rarely do I have an individual walk in the door who's just addicted to wine. Um, most individuals are cross-addicted in some way, shape, form, or fashion, whether it is love, sex, relationships, or shopping, spending, debting, or it may be that they're an alcoholic and they also are restricting in their food intake. So there's a lot of pieces to that. I call it the um, the game of guacamole, like at Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> and it's kind of like you pop one head down and another one pops up. And I tell clients, you know, we're looking for that little hidden imaginary button because we want to push it and address all of these issues. Reset at, the whole game. Yes. And address them at the same time simultaneously so that, you know, they're going to go through withdrawals. And it may not necessarily be a physical withdrawal, like from alcohol or benzodiazepines, but it might be that uh, mentally that there's a withdrawal. And we're trying to equip them with the school skills and tools to be able to tolerate and regulate the emotional distress so they don't start swapping one for another. I love that term that you said, you know, cross addiction, because mm-hmm. it really is, you know, it's a... I don't know what to call it, syndrome, but it really is, you know, when you have a propensity for an addiction to one thing, you very easily can transfer over to another substance or another, you mentioned love, sex, food, all of those things. What are we looking for? What is what is somebody looking for that, that they do those things? Well, you know, what we're trying to do is to help them figure out what is the underlying issue that's fueling the negative self-destructive behavior. Because typically what they're looking for is there's some type of void or a hole inside themselves. And we're trying to figure out what it is, because when you ask a client, you know, what, how much are you using? Typical answer is more. And more means it's never enough. And whether it's more shopping, more spending, um, up in the ante, it's um, some type of hole inside. Very good. Well, we're going to talk more about those, uh, what, what's driving this addiction and how we can help those that we love, that we interact with on a day-to-day basis. How you start those conversations is what I want to talk about when we come back from the break, because that's a hard thing to do is, you know, getting somebody to um, to the right place and, and starting the conversation of, hey, I think we need to do something about your drinking or, you know, your gambling, your shopping. Those are hard conversations to have. And so we would love to talk with our listeners today about any of these issues that that you've come into contact with, or if you have a personal story of someone that you've helped or are looking to help, we would love to hear those as well. You can give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or send me an email at fit at mpbonline.org. And we will be back uh, from our break with Costas Matthews, clinical director and owner at A Bridge to Recovery.
jazz can be just what the doctor ordered. Take the greats, Ella, Coltrane, Dinah, Miles, and Monk. Mix in the contemporary giants like Shure, Rittenauer, Crawl, Malone, and Benson. Join me, Meredith Michelle, with WJSU's Evening Jazz, 7 to 10 weeknights on MPB Music Radio. If you have a vehicle that you no longer need and is collecting dust, we have a solution. Donate it to MPB. Your donation will go towards supporting your favorite programs that keep the community informed. To get more information about our car donation program, call us at 877-MPB-4-CAR or visit mpbonline.org slash support. One day, one drive, and one goal. We're doing a one-day drive looking for your support to help pay the costs of your favorite MPB programs. Help us reach our goal of $125,000 to offset recent state budget cuts. Like other state agencies, MPB's budget is being cut. Listener support helps make up the difference for the lost money. And in these uncertain times, it is especially important that every listener contributes. Your contribution right now is the best way to ensure the future of MPB radio. To give now, visit mpbonline.org. This is Southern Remedy, healthy and fit on MPV Think Radio. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call 877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464. Or you can email the show, fit at mpbonline.org. Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. I'm your host, Dr. Josie Bidwell, here with my guest, Costas Matheos, Clinical Director at A Bridge to Recovery. And we are honoring Alcohol Awareness Month this week by uh, kicking off our week-long shows dedicated to alcohol awareness and substance abuse. And we would love to talk with you guys today about any questions you may have about alcohol or substance abuse or really any addiction disorder. You've got the expert sitting right here in the station, and I do not mean me. Um, And we would love to speak with you. So you can give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring or send me an email at fit at mpbonline.org. Before we went to the break, we talked about um, kind of how we start conversations with folks that we think may have an issue with alcohol or substance abuse. Because I know that, you know, sometimes the individual may not see it. They may not see that problem, but those that they're interacting with, you know, can tell something might not be quite right and how do you broach that subject with someone well typically what i tell clients or tell family members is you know if you're concerned you can express it try to come in from a loving manner of you know i love you i care about you i'm a little concerned about you know how much you're drinking or how often you're drinking or when you are drinking how it's impacting you i mean those are typically good lead-ins and you know clients especially that don't think they have an issue um you're gonna you're gonna hit some denial i mean be prepared to you don't know what you're talking about um i'm just like everybody else everybody else is doing it especially for um the college kids you're gonna hear that you know I'm no different than anybody that I go to school with and who I'm hanging out with. 
and that you know that brings me to another topic that I wanted to talk about. You know, I've got two kids. Um, now my youngest is five, so I'm not there yet. But my oldest is eight, and I see him growing up before my eyes every single day. And I just keep having little flash forwards to teenage years. And you know, I want to be able to have real conversations with him about the stressors that he's going to face as he moves into adolescence and the pressures that he's going to feel from uh, people around them. Uh, do you have any tips for kind of how we how we talk to our kids and how we address this, you know, social drinking that seems to be so rampant in our high school and college age kids? I was having this conversation with my sister this weekend who um, she has a 16 year old. And, you know, I come from the place of I don't specialize in adolescence, so let me say that. Um, but it's one of those, be open, be honest, be transparent. Um, I would encourage you to start the conversation earlier than later. I mean, you know, I'm getting calls, even though we don't treat that the age range of adolescence, that they're asking questions about their 16, their 14, their 12-year-olds, because today I've se- I hear and I've seen that they're starting earlier and earlier. Um, and so it's one of those, you know, be mindful that they are going to be exposed to it. Um, I encourage you not to be in la-la land thinking that your child is any different than anybody else. Um, you can take precautions of, you know, locking up your controlled substances in your house and not only locking them up, but explaining why you keep them locked, um, that it's for safety for them as well as, you know, any of their friends that might come over as well as, you know, any of y'all's friends, because that is something that we see and we hear time and time and time again. So, you know, come from the place of love and not from judgment, but this will happen. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, what is the right way? What is the wrong way to render a child? I, I'm no expert. Um, you know, is it better to have them exposed to alcohol and let them drink at an earlier age? You know, research shows that um, the longer an individual can hold off from using any type of mood-altering substances because their brain is still developing, that's the absolute best. Um you know, and then I'm going to go to reality where they're going to be around it. Their friends are going to the good kids as well as the kids that are wild. They're going to be exposed to it. Um, you know, and people ask, they say, well, what if I let them drink casually uh, at home with the family? Um, you know, I've treated many adult clients that their families, they allowed that to happen. And they thought that was the best idea. And then, you know, you're seeing later that it necessarily wasn't the best idea. Mm -hmm. So I come from the place of, um, you know, knowing that the brain is not fully developed until they're in their 20s. Hold off as long as you can. Don't condone it. Don't provide it. Absolutely not. Um, And see where you can be. But answer the questions. Be honest. Yeah, I agree. You know, we but I think it's important that we do have those conversations. Yes. Early, you know, um, I saw, you know, when I was growing up, some of the families in, in our small area, they just, they didn't talk about alcohol. You know, if you just, if you don't talk about it, it doesn't exist. And, you know, I don't want to suggest the idea of alcohol around my child because that'll make them do it. And I was like, that's not, they're, they're going to do it anyway. You know, the vast majority of kids are going to, to try things because of you know, peer pressure and it's there and it, they think that's what's supposed to happen. So... I actually think the more that we can talk about it with our kids and let them know that this is for adults. 
This yeah. is this is for adults, and it's not to because we're trying to be you know a downer to you. It's for adults, and, and explain to them the reason behind that, but don't shame them, right? Because if you know if your child is is using alcohol and they get into trouble, you know they realize that they've had too much to drink that they can't drive, or the person that they're with has had too much to drink and doesn't need to drive. If they're afraid of you, if they're afraid to say, "Mommy, you know I did this." then they're going to make a poor decision. Right. And, you know, that's something that we can't necessarily take back. So that's kind of how I'm trying to approach it with my kids is that, you know, this is something that adults do and this is why, you know, it's not good for your little growing brain and, and all of that kind of stuff. But if this should happen, you always, always, always can come to us and tell us that so that we can help you out of this. Because I think that it just spirals sometimes with these kids. Yes. And, you know, I think when you lay the foundation of openness and honesty, and that comes first and foremost before anything, that you're not ignoring this social issue. Um, I think that goes right into hand with social media and bullying and um, relationships and sex. I mean, as long as you're open and honest, I think it, it provides a foundation for the trust to be established. Yeah, I mean, that's what it's all about. But to me, that's what parenting is about is yes. <laughs> not being your best friend. I don't have to be your best friend because I'm your parent, but we do have to trust each other. Right. You know, I trust you. You trust me. Now I feel like I'm Barney and we're a happy family. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know where that went, came from. But, you know, th- those are great things to do with your kids. Just, you know, let them know you love them and you support them and that you'll always love them and support them. So, you know, we've talked a little bit about alcohol and now I kind of want to talk about other substances that are out there because that is such a hot thing right now is, you know, the um, prescription drugs that are being abused. And how does that start? You know, how do we, how do those addictions start? Um, good question. You know, when I was growing up, they would say that marijuana was the gateway drug. And I think it's changing. Um, you know, pain pills and benzodiazepines and amphetamines um, and the Vivance and the Ritalin, um, Stratera and Concerta. Well, not Stratera, but... Yeah, not stimulant. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but when there's so much more readily available, you know, a kid can go into the parents, you know, uh, if it's in the bathroom or wherever they keep their medications, and they can they can take one. And so it's much easier to get than alcohol. It doesn't smell. Um, a lot of parents, they're, they're not aware of what an individual looks like when they're impaired. Or it might be that their child is ex- uh, being prescribed the Ritalin, Adderall, Vivance, and they're taking it to stay up later, to be able to study more, and they're not taking it as prescribed. They're abusing it. Um, so that is one thing I think I'm seeing more of those be the gateway drugs, so to speak, than your marijuana or your alcohol. I mean, they're all being used. Please hear me say that. Mm-hmm. But that's one easy way that it happens. And, you know, what I'm aware of is today that my nephew was asking me this about, you know, a heroin user, what did they look like? And I told him, I said, a heroin user looks just like you and me. Because what's happening is individuals who start using these pain pills or opiates, then um, they can't get their hands on some. And then they're buying them on the streets and they go to somebody and say, you know, hey, I I can't find any pain pills, but I've got some heroin. And, um, you know, with an opiate user, a chronic opiate user who's abusing 
way more frequently than once a month, so to speak, um, they're going to start going through withdrawals. And there's like a 72-hour window that somebody's going to use something to be able to change the way they feel and to tolerate those physical, um, you know, flu-like symptoms that they have. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned flu-like symptoms. So talk a little bit about withdrawal-type symptoms and what those feel like, what what the person is experiencing. Um, Well, individuals with the flu-like, and this is coming off of the opiates, their body will ache. I mean, it's very similar to the flu. They might have sweats. Uh, They might be clammy. Their hands get clammy. They might have muscle aches in their legs and their body kind of a cramping. Um, There can be nausea. There can be vomiting. There can be diarrhea. And, um, you know, a lot of individuals, they can't sleep. They can't tolerate um, the stimuli around them, whether it's noise. And they're just in a lot of physical pain. Um, So you're going to see that part. But when a person is actually using opiates, there's more of constipation. And, you know, when you've got somebody who is constipated all the time, can't go to the bathroom, um, I'm not saying everyone who's constipated (laughs) is an opiate addict, but um, if there is concern that somebody's using and they're very constipated, that could be it. Um, But like with benzodiazepines coming off, it's a much slower, um, I mean, a body metabolizes benzodiazepines at a slower rate than opiates. So it's a longer process in detox. And, you know, with opiates, the concern is that a person might go into a seizure or have a seizure. Um, Same thing with Ambien when they're trying to come off of that. So this is where I suggest and recommend that they, you know, they go to a detox facility that's a safe setting that they can be medically stabilized and come off of it, you know, with the care professionals. Right. We can kind of wean you down off of those things. Yes. Because we, you know, don't want to go cold turkey, you know. Right. It's kind of not like cigarettes where you can go cold turkey and you, you, you know, you're going to be grumpy and you might not feel good. But withdrawal symptoms when you are addicted to an opiate is life-threatening. I mean, you can um, die from those types of things. So it is very, very important that you do that in a controlled manner and step those down. And for our listeners that are like, what are they talking about with opiates and benzodiazepines? Opiates are usually your pain medications, morphine, oxycodone, hydrocodone, norco, those types of um, medications. And then your benzodiazepines are usually your anxiety medications like Xanax, Valium, Clonopin, those kinds of medications. And they both um, have their place. So um, not saying that we should never ever use benzodiazepines or we should never ever use pain medications because that is not the case. Um, Pain medications, we know that we need to treat pain when people are in pain because if we don't treat it in that kind of acute phase of pain when they're actively hurting, they're more likely to develop chronic pain and then seek more medication to take care of that. So we always want to treat pain appropriately. Um, You know, sometimes I think people are afraid to take pain medications because they think they're going to get addicted. But the vast majority of people, when taken at the correct dose, at the correct time frame, they are perfectly safe for that. That's when we start to see them uh, using them more and more frequently. So if you're out there and you've had, um, you know, you've been on a pain medication for something and you notice that it might not be controlling your pain as well as it was, it's time to call your healthcare provider and get back in and be seen to see if there's something else going on that's causing the pain. Um, do you see a lot of kind of comorbid depression and anxiety with people who are having addiction disorders? Absolutely. 
Um, and, you know, it's one of those clients will come in and say, well, I'm really depressed and or I'm really anxious. And my doctor prescribed me Xanax and I'm taking it as prescribed. And but they're mixing it with alcohol to intensify the effects. Um, and a lot of individuals get confused, in my opinion, as far as I shouldn't say get confused, but they believe that because it's prescribed by a physician that it's okay to take it. And, you know, if an in, if a client is taking more than the prescribed dosage or their tolerance continues to increase or they're mixing it with alcohol and obviously it says, you know, do not mix with alcohol. Right, big sticker on the side of it. Right. Then that's when it's starting to look at, okay, yeah, you might have an anxiety disorder, but at this point you may have also crossed the invisible line to where you have a substance use disorder. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in my opinion, it really doesn't matter which came first at that point, the chicken or the egg. It's, okay, we've got to treat both. And there are medications that treat anxiety, and I'm not an MD, hear me say that. But there are medications that treat the anxiety that are not mood-altering and controlled substances. And, you know, I think therapy is a big, um, plays a big part in that. So, you know, anytime I see patients who have been prescribed, let's say a benzodiazepine, I like to see it prescribed for the shortest amount of time as possible. And then a referral made for therapy so that we can develop other coping mechanisms to work on the anxiety, the depression that's going on so that we can get off of those medications as soon as possible. And I think it's really important, um, that physicians or prescribers, that they look at an individual's PMP, which is a pharmacy profile, before they start prescribing the benzodiazepines or whatever medication, because I think it's really good insight to see, is this individual taking more than prescribed? Are they doctor shopping? Um, Because, you know, we can all look on Google and find out what are the, you know, what does anxiety look like and walk into the door and say, these are my symptoms. Right. And get a script written. Right. We've got a call from Becky in Mobile and we're going to go to her. Good morning, Becky. And now, good morning, Becky. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm so glad you're talking about this today. Yes, ma'am. Well, we're so glad I you're listening. What you're doing. Thank you. And I want to compliment the young lady who's the working in the field of addiction. Uh, I worked in the field for many, many years, and I'm retired now. But <clears throat> I'd like to point out that today we live in a polydrug culture. Yes, ma'am. And I think it's important to pay attention to how many influences we have. You look at the advertisements on television. You look at the advertisements on the Internet. You look at the advertisements in the newspapers and in magazines. And you think about all the different chemicals we're taking and how we're getting this. Mm -hmm. And rather than focus on the chemical. Those of us who have worked in the field of any length of time like to believe and think about the disease concept of addiction because we rarely see a person come into treatment just using one drug. Mm -hmm. You know, for some people it seems to be a status symbol to go to the doctor and get a prescription. And doctors get kickbacks from some of these drugs that they prescribe you know and i think it's i think it's important for us to take care of what we can 
and to look at the whole family system. During the years that I worked with alcoholics and drug addicts, I began to see grandchildren of people I had worked with years ago go into treatment. And it's such a tragedy. You know, the best mm -hmm. thing we can do is get them involved in the primary part of recovery, which is detox. Right. But because of the disease that affects the person's thinking, it affects them emotionally, and there's a spiritual aspect of this, too. We find that the best thing that we can do for them is get them involved in 12-step philosophy and 12-step programs like AA and NA and Gamblers Anonymous and Overeaters Anonymous, you know, because mm -hmm. when you stop and you look at the family, there are multiple addictions going on in that family. Yes, ma'am. And the family system has to be treated as a whole unit, not just the individual who has addiction issue. But anyway, I want to thank you for doing this. Um, yes, ma'am. AA is a wonderful community resource. It doesn't cost anything. Al-Anon is for families who have somebody they're concerned about who has an alcohol problem. Codependence Anonymous is also available. So talk about these issues. This is very important, and I'm just so glad y'all are doing this today. Thank you. You're so welcome. And thank you so much for listening, Becky. And thank you for calling. And we're going to go to a quick, quick break. And uh, we would love to hear from more folks out there who have got questions or comments about dealing with alcohol and addiction. You can give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring or send me an email at fit at mpbonline.org. And we'll be back after the break. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and by the generous support from you, our listeners. Informative MPB news stories, the local shows you love, up-to-date severe weather info, and a state and worldwide reach telling the story of Mississippi. You're listening to MPB Think Radio. If we have the technology, why don't self-driving cars take over now? Turns out, humans are still getting the hang of them. It may be the most complex activity that most adults on the planet engage in. I'm Ari Shapiro. Uber is testing autonomous vehicles in Pittsburgh. We take a ride in one and see how the experiment is going this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 4 on NPB Think Radio. To listen to stories and shows, go to mpbonline.org. 
If you have a vehicle that you no longer need and is collecting dust, we have a solution. Donate it to MPB. Your donation will go towards supporting your favorite programs that keep the community informed. To get more information about our car donation program, call us at 877-MPB-4-CAR or visit mpbonline.org slash support. This is Southern Remedy, healthy and fit on MPB Think Radio. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call 877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464. Or you can email the show, fit at mpbonline.org. Dr. Josie Bidwell here with my guest, Costas Mateos, who works with A Bridge to Recovery. And we are talking with you guys today about alcohol addiction and really any of the addictive disorders that you guys want to talk about. We are happy to help you with that. But I do want to remind everyone that it is Alcohol Awareness Month. So there are tons of available resources online. When you just Google um, alcohol um, addiction, that will pull up the kind of national website and you can look at They've got great brochures there if you're looking to try and start a conversation with someone. Or there is actually a little online test um, that you can take about yourself that will kind of shed some light on whether you may be at risk for um, developing an addiction to a, a substance. And we've got a call uh, again from Mobile. We're so happy that our uh, people are listening to us in Mobile. We've got Melinda on the line. Good morning, Melinda. Good morning. How are you guys doing? We are doing good, trying to stay dry here in Jackson. Well, we're trying to stay dry here in Mobile, and it seems to be working out. I just wanted to say one thing, a comment, and and let you guys uh, talk, and I'll listen. Don't forget our four-legged friends or really any of our pets uh, for this kind of uh, unconditional love because we all need it. Thank you, dear. Thank you. So I love that. Um, I am a pediatric nurse by training, and so we use pet therapy a ton with our kids that are that have you know chronic pain syndromes that um, may are hematology oncology kids that are going through cancer or any of our kids that are just frequently in the hospital with us. Um, we love to have our pet therapy dogs come up and, and hang out with those kids. Costas, do you have experience with, with pet therapy or a thought about pet therapy as it relates to addiction disorders? Absolutely. There is a wonderful treatment center up in Searcy, Arkansas, um, and it's called Capstone. And it's a younger male, all-male facility, and they specialize in substance use disorder as well as sex addiction, bullying, mental health issues, and they also treat the whole family, which I agree with you, Becky. It's a full spectrum. If you miss the family, you're missing the boat. Um, But one of the things when you go to this treatment center is that all of the clients get a little bitty lab puppy. And and receiving and this puppy goes home with you. And when they get the puppy, it's about learning how to one, you know, get out of being self centered and taking care of another being, as well as you know, I believe all individuals, including individuals and animals, we all need love, support, and boundaries. And so there is an opportunity for them to start practicing 
love, support, and boundaries and seeing how, you know, the benefit in those three things and how important it is. Um, I also have a lab that comes to work with me quite often. And so my clients know that, you know, at any point in time, there's a four-legged friend coming in the room. And it typically, the funny thing is after she's been at work for a day, when we go home, she is absolutely exhausted. And one day a friend of mine said, why is she so tired? She's just been in the office with you. And I said, it's emotionally draining sometimes. I mean, she's present, she's aware. And so I do believe that four-legged friend therapy is absolutely important, as well as equine therapy. Um, I have a friend of mine and who lives around here who has um, who provides equine therapy, and he's a trained, licensed clinician. And the work that he does with individuals um, in his practice is absolutely amazing. And his name is Tim Riesling. And so that's something that if y'all want more information about, I'll give it to Josie and definitely look into it. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the take home from all of this is if one type of therapy does not work for you, keep looking because there are other options. So we've talked about, you know, pet therapy, you mentioned equine therapy, so it's that's horses. And there's music therapy, that there, there are licensed, um, certified music therapists that can help. You know, music has such a power. It has, you know, it's linked to so many memories and so many emotions. And, you know, I've really seen that work well in patients who are, are you know struggling with mental issues is just having music therapy there's art therapy you know which is a great outlet for dealing with emotions and i'm actually a uh, licensed art therapist when i went oh, to when i went to graduate school um that is one of that's what i went and studied is you know one of my beliefs it's not so much about what you consciously create but it's more about the subconscious and the unconscious doing the work for you and you know people will ask me well so do you just work with kids and no i don't just work with kids um, because i work with adults not children and it's about you know a lot of times when i have clients who struggle with overanalyzing and intellectualizing therapy um it's about to me it's the head and the heart connection because if there's not the 12-inch journey and the connection between the two um we're not incorporating it you know becky mentioned that it's a spiritual recovery and you know that that has to be a part of it. And sometimes it's just connecting in a way of using your non-dominant hands so that you can't really, you know, make what you're trying to create. So um, it's absolutely another type of therapy that's very, very, very beneficial. That would be abstract art if I tried <laughs> to create something with my non-dominant hand. Um, it would be, maybe it would be famous. Maybe I should try that and, and sell that on the side. But that, that's great. So there's so many different types of, of therapy out there. So just keep looking um, if you're, you know, if you've kind of been dissatisfied with one type of therapy, keep looking for that. So Melinda, thank you so much for taking us down that road of, of alternative type therapies for helping with um, addiction disorders. We also have a call um, from Hattiesburg from Janet. Good morning, Janet. Yes, I just have a quick question. I have a family member who... Um, takes alcohol for like pain or anything, how would I um, let her be more aware of that it, she has an addiction? Well, um, I come from the place of, have you expressed concern about this individual? Janet? Yes. Have you, have you had any kind of conversation with her about maybe being concerned? 
I have, and it's like she takes it to heart, and she doesn't completely still understand. She'll say it's time to take another shot. Okay. Has she had any consequences? I mean, obviously, a consequence is it's impacting your relationship. Um, have have there been any other consequences with, due to her drinking? You know, is it affecting her work or, you know, uh, is she getting in trouble or having, you know, a DUI? No, she only drinks at home. Okay. Is it preventing her from engaging with others and socially uh, as far as friendships and, you know, engaging in hobbies and things that she's enjoyed? Not that I'm aware of. Okay. Um, what about any of her friends? Have they expressed concern or other family members? I honestly don't know. Okay. Well, sometimes it's helpful that, you know, if it's happening and you're concerned about it, sometimes other family members might be as well. And talking to them, you know, are you concerned? And y'all sitting down and talking with her so then it's not just you by yourself. Um, Also, you know, when we're concerned that someone is in very significant denial, then um, it might be time to have an intervention. I'm not an interventionist, but there are many people who... Um, are skilled and trained to be able to reach the individual that you're concerned about to see, you know, can we provide them and and get them some help that they need. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. And, you know, one other thing, you know, we, we, on the break, we were talking about Alcoholics Anonymous. And so, you know, when you're having this conversation with her, if she seems receptive, you know, to start off with, you know, offer to go with her, you know, instead of just saying, you know, I think you need to get some help, you know, I, I use that tactic with, you know, the types of of problems that I treat, which is usually, you know, eating and physical activity and that kind of of thing. But having a buddy, you know, we're going to go work out together or we're, you know, we're going to do this together. We're going to text back and forth. So just offering to go with her um, to, you know, an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting or uh, to make an appointment with her healthcare provider to kind of start this conversation, just having somebody go with you can kind of take some of that, um, fear out of it you know i i don't know that i would have the guts to walk into to some of these things by myself so having somebody with me that is supportive and and that i know loves me um enough to go with me would would be a way to help and also um for you i would encourage you to go to al-anon you know al-anon is um you know it's a free support group there are many meetings you can google to find what support groups are around you um, to get support, it's for friends and families of individuals who um, have an, a, a substance use issue. And so go into that and reaching out to other individuals who may be going through the same thing with you um, will provide you some ideas and support of what they've done, you know, and then to see that you're not alone in this struggle. So I have those... been 11 years clinging off of myth. Awesome. Fantastic. And... Good for you. Thank you for um, sharing that with us and letting our listeners was... know that you can do this. <laughs> It was hard in the beginning. It really was. Um, It got easier after time. I have a lot of friends in Arkansas who are still dealing with it, Mm -hmm. and I just tell them to stay strong. Mm -hmm. Well, you sound like a strong lady, and I'm very proud of you and also that you're seeking help for your family member and we we so hope that those things go well for you and if you need us you know you always send me an email and we'll be happy to you know, send you any other resources that we come across okay yeah. and what's really weird is everyone here's my age and they're like you've been 11 years and you're like i'll be only 
29 this year. So I started partying young and right. did everything young. Right. I see now that it was wrong, and I tell, like, all the high school students that I come across, stay in school, don't drop out, don't get into drugs and alcohol. Right. It ain't worth it. Right. Well, I'm, I mean, kudos to you for kind of pulling yourself out of that and getting, you know, getting back on the road to recovery. And that's fantastic. So, Janet, um, have a great rest of your Monday. And thank you so much for calling and spending a little bit of time with us this morning. So uh, we have a few minutes left. Um, if you have any questions, go ahead and send them to me via email at fit at mpbonline.org. And before we leave today, I do want um, to mention um, Alcoholics Anonymous and how people can get in touch with Alcoholics Anonymous, find a, a class. You were telling me about some really cool kind of um, asynchronous type of things that you can do with mm-hmm. that. Tell me about, about all that. Um, well, there are meetings everywhere. Um, if you just go to Google and plug in, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, you're going to pull up uh, typically a website that says put in your zip code and meetings will pop up. And I have a client right now, I was telling Jesse, who's in China and, you know, she's going to meetings in Beijing. There are meetings everywhere, even on cruise ships. If you look on the agenda or the itinerary for the day, it'll typically say uh, a meeting for friends of Bill W., And that's, you know, anyone who's in a recovering program knows who Bill W. is. And there's a recovering program for you out there. There's also um, online meetings. And, you know, I have clients that, for whatever reason, are in the middle of nowhere. And a closest meeting is two hours for them. So they'll do online meetings. Um, And it can be, you know, via telephone conference or it could be, um, typing and chatting. So there's there's definitely opportunities. And these 12-step meetings, whether it's for AA, which is Alcoholics Anonymous, or Overeaters Anonymous, or SLA, which is Sex and Love Anonymous, there's there's a 12-step meeting for just about everything, not only for individuals who are, who are suffering from the disease, but the family members who are suffering from the disease. Um, it might be ACOA, which is Adult Children of Alcoholics, or Codependency, which is a CODA meeting, Um, you know, and there's also meetings for children, um, because let's not forget that in saying that it's a family disease, our children are also impacted. They are. And so, you know, we live in an age where information is at our fingertips. So get out there and and Google away and you can get plugged into somewhere in your area that can help you with these things. And just like she mentioned, there are, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, Overeaters Anonymous, pretty much any kind of addiction that you could think of. Mm-hmm. There's an anonymous for that, that you can go and get plugged in with um, and get some support and help with that. And if you live in the Jackson area, there is um, a central office for AA and it's up off Northside Drive uh, up on McWillie. And you can call them if you don't have access to a vehicle or you need a ride. Um, Part of recovery is service work. And they will put you in touch with somebody who will be able to help you get to a meeting. We've had such a great Monday today talking with you guys and hearing your stories and your comments about alcohol and addiction. If you have more questions, you can always email us at fit at mpbonline.org. And thanks to my guest, Costas Mateos, who has been here helping me answer these questions today. And we have so enjoyed our Monday and look forward to seeing you again next week on Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit.